Hello, everyone. This is a Scientific Sense podcast where we uh, talk about emerging ideas uh, with academics from various disciplines. My name is Gil Epen. My guest today is Professor Barbara Petrangolo, who is Professor of Economics at the University of Oxford. She's Fellow of the British Academy, Director of the CEPR Labor Economics Program, and a Research Associate at the Center for Economic Performance of the London School of Economics. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your recent uh, papers, um, how women in the workplace has changed over the last 50 years, in which you say during the second half of the 20th century, most of the developed world witnessed a spectacular rise in women's participation in the labor market, the convergence of men's and women's wages and earnings, and the entry of women into occupations traditionally occupied by men. A widely documented trend uh, is the gain in human capital accumulation among women, which has led to the reversal of gender gaps in college completion rates. Meanwhile, medical advances have reduced fertility and delayed marriage, while the introduction of oral contraceptives and improved maternal health and provided substitutes to breastfeeding. So, this sounds very optimistic, <laughs> Barbara. So your your colleague uh, and uh, freshly minted Nobel laureate um, uh, Claudia Golden from Harvard uh, was on the program a couple of years ago, and we talked about these issues more qualitatively. And um, and so you know, this sounds like we are making big headway in here. Is that really true? So what you just summarized does sound optimistic. Indeed, the increased participation of women to the economy was yeah. one of the most significant changes in labor markets of the past decades, even the whole past century, if you like. So, and as you've mentioned, there has been convergence in earnings between men and women. The employment with the women have increased. Women are increasingly doing professions that used to be male-dominated. The gap in college completion rates has narrowed and then reversed in many countries. And this looks especially optimistic if one compares it with the backdrop of increasing inequalities yeah. along other important dimensions. So, for example, inequality increased by education, it increased by labor market experience, it increased by social background, by gender it has indeed decreased. Mm. But this is where probably the optimism should pose because despite decades of progress, there are large and persistent gaps in the economic fortunes of men and women in most countries around the world. Yeah, so the, the, the trend is definitely positive in this dimension, you're saying. And if I understand you correctly, it's also sort of dominant compared to other aspects of inequality that we see, uh, economic inequality, race, those types of things. Uh, gender has been more progressive, uh, sort of closing the gap, right? Is that is that the right way to think about it? So, yes, yeah, so the, the, the trend was good, but the gaps haven't closed and far from it. So there are some remaining gaps in most indicators of economic success for men and women. So there is still an employment gap. There is still an earnings gap despite the fact that the uh, gap in college completion rates has narrowed and reversed in most countries, 
there are still systematic differences in the kind of college major that men and women choose. And yeah. also, very importantly, women still bear most of the financial penalty associated to becoming a parent. Yeah, so I, I can relate to this, Barbara. So um, I, I have a unique perspective on this, um, albeit some, somewhat ad hoc. Uh, I grew up in India, and when I was growing up in India, uh, boys are always considered good engineers. Um, I never seen any data on this, actually. Um, the engineering school that I went to had 250 people every year, and in, in my batch was 247 boys and three girls. Uh, so those three girls would have had pretty difficult time, I would think. Um, and so, the, I mean, you talk about this, about norms, generally speaking. And so my perspective early on is from a developing country. And norms are very persistent. Um, and it takes a long, long time to change. And so when I was growing up, I have seen, you know, parents giving boys trucks and buses and they give girls dolls and whatever, you know, it's, it is by definition um, starting off a segregation process in, uh, in education, right? Yes, so the situation you were just describing about India is a situation that we do observe in many countries in which women are underrepresented, substantially underrepresented in STEM-related fields. So the example that you were making about engineering fits exactly this uh, uh, this common trend around the world. And then the next question is, of course, why is it so? And what are the consequences of this? So there might be two views about gender gaps in education and elsewhere. Uh, so one view is that men and women have different characteristics, including different skills, different preferences, different traits. And the gaps that we observe in education and the labor market alike are simply a reflection of differences in characteristics. The other view is that perhaps men and women are a lot more similar than the stereotypes would lead us to believe. And instead, the gaps that we observe are related to barriers or constraints that women face in the entry to certain career tracks, certain educational fields. So the kind of gender norms and stereotypes that you were just referring to fall into this category of barriers and constraints that yeah. limit the allocation of talent to the best possible career track or education field that would maximize the returns to the skills of a given individual. So if we embrace this idea that indeed there are constraints, there are barriers to the entry of women, but also to the entry of men in certain occupation, then we would conclude that perhaps the talent of women is not optimally allocated, is not optimally used. And in the same way, the talent of men is not optimally used, because in the same way as there are like male dominated occupations, there are also female dominated occupations, for example, in teaching, nursing, social care. And perhaps there are some invisible barriers to the entry of men in these occupations, even to men that would perform really well in those occupations. So whenever there are this kind of gender stereotypes that prevent the entry of people in career tracks that maximize their own talent, then it means that we are not using people's talent efficiently. Yeah, it's really fascinating, Barbara. So uh, let me know if I'm thinking about this correctly. So there is a sort of initial conditions problem here, which is 
um, a human being has, let's say, 70 years, 80 years of lifespan. And when you start off, you have these norms you talk about or initial conditions that are set by society. You are a, on a different slope um, from that from that perspective. So, so then I sort of, you know, move back in time and I say when companies come to hire a man or a woman, um, the the woman is sort of impeded by those initial conditions. Uh, so you talk about STEM education, you talk about there's a lot of other things that are going on there, right? So, so the end outcome that you observe is that economically efficient or is it still bad decisions that these companies are making? It might not be efficient. So as Axel said, there are some initial conditions and the initial conditions may start at home and in early years education, the way in which your family is treating you, the way in which your kindergarten teachers or primary school teachers are treating you. And then it means that you might be accumulating skills in a systematically different way. And when you approach the labor market, there are two things that might be at play. One thing is that your set of skills as a woman might be systematically different from the set of skills accumulated in the education system by a man, for example, the STEM, non-STEM divide. And yeah. secondly, when you start to form a family and you have children, it has been shown that in many countries around the world, even very different countries characterized by different levels of development, different institutional structures, most of the financial penalty associated to parenthood falls on women. So, for example, women are a lot more involved in childcare than men, which inevitably limits their involvement in the workplace. So both this fact and the fact that women may enter the labor market with a different set of educational sort of degrees means that in the workplace they might be faring differently from men. Yeah, I quite like this, uh, Barbara. So I, I wrote a book in 2009, it's called Flexibility, mm -hmm. uh, in which I argued uh, sort of in the opposite way, which is women are highly skilled in um, sort of managing complex organizations. I argue without any data. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I say, you know, large countries, corporations uh, should be managed by women because it's it's a very complex set of interacting things. And men it seems like they're more process oriented and they tend to be less efficient. So, you know, say Angela Merkel, you see Justin Darden, you know, you, you see some really good leaders, right? So. Um, not many people bought the book, uh, a few in New Zealand and some in Scottish. <laughs> uh, and so, so what is your perspective on that? I know I, I argued um, that women are much more skilled, actually, uh, to be in the top of organizations um, than, you know, sort of the nuts and bolts of manufacturing and, you know, making automobiles and things like that. So what do you think about that? So. I don't know what kind of evidence you you, you, you were basing this <laughs> this kind of conclusion. Yeah. One issue about uh, drawing conclusion about traits from the current allocation of people to occupations and tasks is that that allocation might already be affected by whatever kind of initial conditions we were talking about before. Yeah. So 
there are a lot of studies these days that both economists and social psychologists have been putting together about differences in the traits, several important traits of men and women. And one way to understand those differences would be to consider at least two dimensions. One dimension is how much does the average man differ from the average woman in some dimensions? For example, you mentioned something similar to multitasking, but then we could also think about um, analytical ability or self-confidence or uh, arrogance or attitudes towards negotiation or altruism, and the list goes on. We can think of dozens of, of, of traits. So how differ, different are these traits for the average man and the average woman? And most of the debate basically focuses on differences between the average man and the average woman. But then there is something else which is very important that we should also consider is that within a gender, there is a lot of variation. So the, the, the average woman is probably very different in many of these traits from the top and the bottom woman and similarly for men. So one way to put average differences into perspective is to think in the following way. Imagine that there is a distribution of a certain trait for men. Say yeah. this trait is self-confidence. And then there is another distribution of the same trait for women. And then one way to think about differences is to say, how big is the difference between the average man and the average woman relative to the within gender variation? So in other terms is to say, how much do, this, do these distributions overlap? And how big is this overlap relative to the differences in mean? And then a lot of these meta-analysis have found, for example, that the differences in means are typically dwarfed by the within gender difference in most of the traits. So for the vast majority of traits, there is much bigger variation within gender than between gender. So if we are trying to explain, for example, different gender representation in some professions by simply thinking, OK, but women are better at men than that, than men at that, and men are better than women at that, perhaps we are not looking in the right place. We are really missing the fact that there is huge variation within each gender. And then, yes, Anna, Anna, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, so, so I just want to dig into this a little bit, um, Barbara. So, Mean is one thing, average is one thing, uh, but how, how, how do the modes look in those distributions? So uh, the analyses that I've seen are, are relatively simple in the sense that they approximate the distribution of traits with a normal hmm. distribution in most cases. Okay, okay, okay. So it's a symmetric distribution, the mean coincides with the mode. Uh, okay. I'm afraid that, would, it, that you, you, you've asked a very interesting question. Uh, and then, of course, another question is, why would the distribution not be symmetric? For example, for some traits, you may think that you have a very fat tail on the right for men or a very fat tail yeah. on the right for women for some other trait. So these, these are really very interesting questions. And it's multifactorial, as you say. So, you know, we, we can look at factor by factor how those distributions are, but ultimately the end outcome is sort of a multifactorial combination of those uncertainties, right? So. So, so really, from a from a policy perspective, it's that end outcome that we want to we want to really measure, which is very really, very really difficult, <laughs> I would think, to measure. Right, that is the problem. 
So from a policy perspective, I mean, very theoretically, one would say if there were no barriers to anybody's entry into any profession, then we would achieve an efficient allocation of talent to occupations and tasks. Now, of course, this is all very theoretical. So we, we really should think about deep down what are, what are the barriers. So something that we've mentioned before was gender differences in uh, the type of education mm. that people choose and gender differences in the financial cost of parenthood. So what are the barriers behind that? So for differences in education, as you've mentioned before, there is probably quite a lot to be said about the roles of the family and the early years education in either making or breaking stereotypes. I mean, the role could go in both directions. So policy precisely should kind of uh, redress, try to redress the stereotypes, for example, in the education system. And this is a very difficult task, of course, because everybody comes to the to the education system with their own sort of baggage, with their own culture, with their own stereotypes, even some sort of like completely uh, unconscious biases that we all have. So this is this is a very complicated task. The other thing is about, for example, the cost of uh, of motherhood. So what does this boil down to? Well, women do a lot more childcare than men, and this implies that there are more constraints when they need to enter some occupations that, for example, require continuous attachment to the workplace. So how could policy intervene there? So one way would be regulating workplaces, for example, introducing um, regulation that helps the introduction of part-time jobs, flexible working, working from home, there is quite a bit of research on that. And for example, precisely Claudia Golding that you mentioned before, she has done research on the importance of, say, special rewards, extra rewards to long hours. So if hours were rewarded linearly without any special price for working especially long hours, then we would be able to reduce the gender wage gap into those mm. occupations, most notably, for example, in the corporate sector or the legal sector, that tend to reward the long-hour culture. Another way, for example, would be to introduce, as I said, flexible working and working from home. But again, this is, this is not an easy solution for various reasons. First of all, it's not really clear that, for example, having more women in flexible jobs or women working from home wouldn't be a detriment to their careers in the sense that it might be that some high achieving jobs would simply not be not be made available on a part time basis or on a working from home basis or on a flexible basis. So some things might not be made available by employers. And even if they were made available, perhaps we can think that there may be an intrinsic value to physical presence at work. So perhaps being next to your colleagues, to your boss, to your team members has a value per se for your own career. So if you're not around very much, people may forget about you when, you, when they're thinking of a promotion or when they're thinking about a lucrative client to yeah. uh, assign to a lawyer. So again, this is this this is not a, uh, a, a fantastic solution, let's say, because there is also the risk that it may generate even more inequality in the type of work arrangements chosen by men and women. The other way to think about it is yeah. to think about really what are deep down the causes of the unequal division of labor in the household. And this may go back to the idea of stereotypes and gender norms. So if the division of labor in the household was equalized, was symmetric between men and women, then 
the long hour culture in the workplace wouldn't be any more detrimental to women's careers than to men's careers, because basically both of them would be doing the same amount of childcare. So perhaps we should step back and ask, okay, but why are the roles not equalized in the household? And there inevitably we have to think again of norms and stereotypes. Hmm. Yeah, so so I, I, I don't know if I'm thinking about this correctly, uh, Barbara. So for me, uh, a corporation or a household is an optimization problem. The corporation, if the if the you know the top agents are making the right decisions, they will maximize shareholder value. And so any constraint on personal selection based on some arbitrary <laughs> arbitrary criteria like gender or race or something, by definition, um, reduces shareholder value. Um, but we don't have corporations that maximize shareholder value, I argue. <laughs> Uh, so, so what we have is sort of a club effect, which is suppose I start a, a country club and I admit the first dozen people into that country club, their characteristics are going to be perpetuated in that country club forever, right? Um, and that's what we see in corporations, that we, that's what we see in institutions. So it goes back to the initial condition problem here, which is uh, those who got good initial conditions are going to perpetuate this bias. Uh, it might not be there. Um, I, maybe they don't quite understand it. You know, they just say, you know, I, I just want to be surrounded by people like me. Um, you know, it worked for me in the past, and it will work in the future. So they're not really looking at shareholder value maximization. Um, you know, more systematically. In uh, the household, as you say, in the paper. Uh, that is also a joint decision, right? So there is an optimization problem there too. Um, and that's a much more complex problem actually. So 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 how do how do couples decide that to allocate resources, allocate time and 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 have sort of a combined maximization process? So the metaphor that you just made is very interesting. So thinking about the household as a sort of production unit that maximizes some value. So if we see the family that way, you can think that the family is maximizing the welfare of its members. For example, if there are children, the welfare of each parent and the welfare of the children. So what's the best way to achieve that? To achieve that, you need a combination of time and money, just to put it super, super simply. Uh, And then... To maximize time and money, somebody may think, well, perhaps in a household we really need specialization. So the person that has the highest value in the market works in the market a very long number of hours, earns most of the family income, and puts very little time in the home-based tasks that also need to be done. For example, childcare and, for example, chores to be done around the household. The other spouse that has a comparative disadvantage in the market or a comparative advantage in the household would instead work very little in the market, so earn a very small share of the family income and do most of the work in the household, for example, raising kids. So this is one possible view, and this view leads to specialization. One mostly works in the market, the other one mostly works at home. There might be two issues with this view. One issue is that if one simply thinks about maximization of, let's call it family output, for want of a better word, 
Yeah. This kind of specialization doesn't mean that it should be primarily the man who works in the market, because there might be couples in which the woman has a comparative advantage in the market. The problem with this reasoning, though, is that we would need prices in the market, I mean, like wages, to uh, reflect the returns to scale. So if there are distortions in the market, then this, this argument is not valid. Anyway, so this is one problem that even if we think about Wages, they just reflect the skills, the market are competitive, allocation is efficient. It doesn't mean that the person who works in the market is, in most cases, the man rather than the woman. The other problem is, is kind of deeper down. Again, what is the combination of men's and women's time in the household that maximizes the household welfare? And this goes back to this idea of diversity. So. One key uh, component of this household welfare is the welfare of children. So yeah. the question is, and I mean, there is very little evidence of that so far, so this would be a very important avenue of research. Yeah. Uh, is the household able to produce better, meaning like happier, healthier, more educated children, yeah. if this job is mostly done by one person that specializes into this task, or is the household achieving a better outcome for children if both parents are involved in this task? Right. So what are the returns to diversity relative to specialization? This is a very, very important question. I mean, and this is a question that, for example, is now addressed in sort of similar ways, is investigated in similar ways in the labor market. Is there yeah. a return from diversity in teams? And many studies have found that indeed there is a return because people from different strands of life may bring something different to the team and whatever people have to bring is, is complement to what other people are bringing to the team. So one could possibly make a similar argument for the household as well. Yeah, so so that, well, so that there's a difference between household wealth and household value mm -hmm. uh, in, in some sense, right? So let's say for argument's sake, the woman is much more skilled, much more competent in bringing up kids, let's say. Mm -hmm. And the dads are pretty useless, <laughs> let's say, in many ways. And so a focus on the kids um, has to be a specialized, specialized focus. And in this situation between two people, um, the woman appears to be more, more skilled at that. So isn't that sort of an optimization allocation question? I, I know that it has a lot of lot of problems <laughs> as you look forward, but um, that's sort of what we see, right? The the mothers are much more nurturing. They sort of understand the kids a lot better. Uh, I, this might be just my bias, actually. So, so, so think, what is your again, if you observe, if you observe yeah. things as they are in the baseline allocation, you might observe that mothers are more caring and nurturing because this yeah. is what they've been doing for the bulk of their time since the kids were born. But then the important question is, suppose that you put a dad in the same situation, perhaps yeah. a few years down the line, he yeah. would be as nurturing as a mother would be. So yeah. I guess we have very little evidence that women may really have a sort of biological comparative advantage in, in raising kids beyond, of course, pregnancy and the first few months, which involve lactation. But after that, I mean, what do we know about women being 
much better than men, for example, in looking after a toddler or right. in taking a primary school kid to piano lessons, etc., or to helping them with homework and the list can go on. I think we have very little evidence on that. And indeed, the very few studies that look at the impacts of paternity leave on child development, I mean, this is an area that is still very much in its infancy because it's only a relatively recent policy. But the studies that see cases, that look at cases in which men were spending more time with their children because they were responding to the policy incentive to the father's quotas, they had children that then in the future were more likely, for example, to have a more balanced education, for example, girls that were more likely to choose STEM fields. This is a very recent paper I listened to in a conference recently, and I thought, oh, this is probably telling us something about the returns to diversity in education, educating kid, kids within the household. Yeah, so let me push on this a little bit, Barbara. So um, isn't there sort of some sort of an evolutionary basis here? So if you started off in African savannah, let's say half a million years ago, we know that men were going out and hunting animals and all of that, and you know, women were sort of managing the complex household. And so we have been doing that for a, for a long, very long period of time. And only in the last, let's say, thousand years, things, you know, we, we tried to make it more normalized, uh, more, more equal. Um, but just like, you know, we see all these diseases in healthcare, diabetes, hypertension, uh, this all started with agriculture <laughs> 10,000 years ago. And so, you know, in some sense, when we move away from a well-tuned machine over hundreds of thousands of years into something completely different, we, we would see a lot of problems with that too, right? I'm just throwing it out there for your reaction. So what we'll see that you, you talked about at the beginning, this kind of uh, early society in which men were hunters and women were at home bearing kids. So this is a society that mostly, almost entirely rewarded physical skills. Yeah. So men are physically stronger, so they specialize into something that is physically very demanding. And women, of course, have a comparative advantage in producing kids breastfeeding them and afterwards taking care of them because they are the parent that stays at home. So this is a sort of time allocation that entirely rewards the physical yeah. comparative advantages. Now, with millennia of uh, uh, progress, progress meant, for example, technological progress was compensating female disadvantage in physical tasks. So with the first waves of industrialization, of course, women had a comparative disadvantage in working in, in manufacturing in like factories because they were less strong than men. And that is a sector that would require some physical, some sort of physical strength. But these days in manufacturing, there is very little physical strength required. So perhaps women no longer have a comparative disadvantage in that yeah, sector. Yeah. Right. So this is just a very simple example of technological progress. Then there have been, again, millennia of medical progress, and this uh, medical progress has massively reduced the biological comparative advantage of women in raising kids. For example, the improvements, uh, the health improvements around birth. So birth is a less risky business for women, so the incapacitation after birth is much shorter. There are substitutes to, uh, to mother's milk. 
uh, a lot of other sort of medical progress, for example, like contraceptive pills. All these things have reduced the burden of fertility on women. So in a sense, millennia of progress have massively reduced physical comparative advantages of men and women. And yeah. what we are left with is not necessarily systematically different as we observe physical comparative advantages to be different. So this is where we are now. We are trying to think about what is the best allocation of talents to task using the technology and the medical advancements that we now have to make sure that men and women can do their best in mm. most careers. Now, one indirect yeah. piece of evidence that indeed also employers are taking on board the idea that gender equality might be welfare enhancing or efficiency enhancing inside the firm is that we do observe employers, increasingly so, voluntarily offering uh, non-wage benefits within their workplaces, for example, extended uh, parental leave, for example, workplace-based crash. So these are all sort of family-friendly kind of benefits that are found to have a very important impact in attracting and retaining women. If employers didn't care about attracting and retaining female talents, why would they offer crash at all unless they were mandated by the state? But in mm. most cases, they're not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is so interesting, uh, Barbara. So, so you talk about sort of industrialization and uh, hopefully we'll get to your sort of larger paper that looks at 150 years of uh, changes. Um, but I was thinking, um, this is not in your research, but uh, if you can speculate, uh, we, we have a lot of technological changes going on. So we have artificial intelligence, we have robotics. We are basically removing humans from processes, right? So as you say, any advantage a, a male might have had um, in the past in terms of manufacturing, we do, you know, maybe 10, 15, I mean, this is my bias, 10, 15, 20 years from now, there'll be no humans in manufacturing, absolutely none. And these robot robots can be programmed remotely. So there's no difference between man and woman in the future. And, and artificial intelligence will, you know, basically make sure that is the case. So we are moving at a very fast pace toward sort of a situation where any sort of human gender superiority that existed last half a million years uh, is all going to evaporate in the next 20 years. So it has a lot of societal implications too. So, so what do you think it's going to, it's going to do? So you're talking about something that a lot of people are interested in. So what is the future of labor against yeah. the backdrop of like fast technological progress, for example, the wave, uh, the latest wave of AI? Uh, so one important thing is that you you, you may think, yes, uh, perhaps gender differences in the workplace are going to be even less important with the uh, dominant use of AI. Now, something that is very important for the for AI is people who have the skills to let AI sort of enter certain sectors, certain tasks. So there will be a high returns to those skills. What are those skills? So that, 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 that that's perhaps uh, anyone's yeah. guess. I mean, you may have very sort of sophisticated skills that are needed in understanding, for example, the impact of AI or the best uses of AI. 
but also you may have the need of sort of middle skills, people who don't need to be rocket scientists, but people who had to basically check on the uh, on the AI algorithm on the on on the robot on yeah. whatever has been programmed by someone else, simply checking from time to time that the job is happening in the way that it's supposed to be. So that the, 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 there might be some change in the structure of the demand for skills. Hmm. Uh, there is no clear evidence that this is going to be gender bias. So I, I, I agree. I don't see why that should see a, a gender bias, except if we believe that perhaps the returns to STEM fields are going to be even higher in a world in which AI is going to be more prevalent. At the moment, we are underinvesting in those skills. Yeah, so yes, I'm talking myself away from my own hypothesis here. So. Um, we talked about this a little bit. So if STEM is really sort of dominated by male, uh, this change that we're going to go through is going to make the situation worse. And we see this actually, you know, in large companies, um, search companies, social media companies, they're all really dominated by males. That's because, you know, if you look at computer science universities around the world, it's still sort of 90, 10, uh, break and so they're they're all sort of trained in this and they're going to dominate that field. So in some sense, this new technology that's going to come through could make this gender bias worse. <laughs> I'm thinking now. I, I was thinking it would like, make it better, but not necessarily, right? You're saying that, that that could be a potential barrier in the baseline sort of skills in terms of education and labor market experience that men and women have. Now, again, this goes back to gender differences in uh, education tracks. So first of all, what is the role, for example, of early years education in uh, uh, breaking stereotypes, or at least not generating stereotypes in your own kids about what are their skills? Yeah. What is the role of policy in breaking those stereotypes? For mm -hmm. example, there have been several experiments in various contexts around the world of young men and young women in education, like even kids, girls and boys in education, responding, for example, to role models. So what is the what is the role model of, for example, seeing women in tech, learning that women can be as good in tech uh, fields or in tech occupations as men? That does have an impact in terms of aspirations of younger girls. Yeah. Or exposure to female leaders, for example. This is not so much about tech, but also about politics. What does it mean to be exposed to female politicians or yeah. in the corporate sector, female CEOs, etc.? This this kind of experiences do have an impact on the expectations and aspirations of the people, sort of uh, of the audience in that. Mm -hmm. But the but the process is very slow. Yeah, it's low by definition because if a certain, say, profession is male dominated, it means that in that profession there are very few female leaders. So there would be very few role models that would break the stereotypes for the younger generation. So it's it's something that takes place very gradually. So we see that, for example, in academia, uh, in economics especially, there's very few women at the higher layers in universities, and there are a lot more yeah. women at lower layers. And then the idea is that, well, perhaps 
is this a cohort effect? Is this an age effect? Perhaps we can expect that gradually over time, those younger women would be nurtured into becoming leaders in the profession a few years down the line. Yeah, we talked about that also um, with your colleague from the University of Pittsburgh, sort of non-promotable work and the mm -hmm. shared non-promotable work that is taken up by women. Um, so I want to touch on one thing that you mentioned uh, before. So I don't know if this is the right word, uh, Barbara. So this handicap women have, which is they are the ones who are you who are bringing uh, humans, kids back, kids into the world in the current technology. Um, my daughter's an OBGYN. Uh, she doesn't buy this, but I'm of the belief that maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now, we'll be manufacturing humans outside, outside the womb, um, in which case we can actually remove that handicap from, from uh, female gender, right? So that might have a huge impact on how, the, how this whole thing works. Well, in a sense, if we think that that original handicap is what is generating the whole construct of norms and stereotypes, one could say, well, perhaps if we remove that, we've removed the source of it. But yeah. another way to look at it is to say, well, let's keep the handicap in place. Even if we do that, perhaps your daughter is right. If we keep the handicap in place, how important is it? how how relevant is that handicap in the big scheme of things, in the scheme mm. of a whole human life? I mean, we are talking about perhaps a few weeks of pregnancy when somebody is not at their best in order to work, and a few months of breastfeeding. I mean, in the big scheme of things, what is the return to those lost months of labor market experience? It's not that large. Yeah. So perhaps something that sounds more realistic uh, well, hopefully removing these kind of stereotypes is more realistic than making <laughs> artificial babies. I don't know. But, but perhaps something that is sort of simpler is to just recognize that this kind of big incapacitation that women right. have because they're generating babies, perhaps at the end of the day, is not that big. Yeah, so, so I mean, there's sort of a societal value question here, right? So from an economics perspective, there's a lot of externalities. So the the cost that women are taking to bring new humans into society, uh, not only adds value to the family, but also adds value to society. So there is a, there's an external value that we need to really capture. And, mm -hmm. and, and women have to be compensated for that uh, extra value that they bring to society, right? Oh, basically, women are indeed incapacitated to precisely bring that value into society. And most high-income countries have in place systems to compensate them, for example, with maternity leave, various benefits, various means of support to the family. So this is something that rich societies have taken on board. They have realized what is the value of doing that activity. First of all, to bring new kids into the world, but also to ensure equality, to uh, to, to, to sort of rebalance the endowment of time between men and women. But perhaps what I was trying to say before is that the rebalance that we need to do in order to even out the sort of biological differences is not that large. We are talking about a few months in an individual's life. 
Now, something very interesting that you just mentioned before when you were, were when you were talking uh, about non-promotable tasks, you were just mentioning yeah. this other burden that comes on women. It's not just <laughs> doing babies, it's the non-promotable tasks, which I think are even heavier than doing the babies. So this happens because in many institutions, in many organizations, there's very few women who are like senior. And these women are asked to be part of many aspects of decision making. And be, because there's very few of them, they have to tick all the boxes. They have to be on all committees. I yeah. believe this is extremely damaging, not just because this is a non-promotable task. So especially for younger women, this could be damaging. But it's also damaging in a much wider sense, because if we want, if we require to have women in, for example, decision roles who should uh, oversee equality in a certain organization, equal opportunities in a certain organization, then we mean, it means that we are effectively delegating the issue about equal opportunities to the minority. But women are not exactly, a minor, they're not a minority in the world, but they might be a minority in this particular layer. So they are, they are delegating the, majority the, the world, issue actually. about equality to the minority means that we are sending across the message that this is a minority problem. Equality is a woman's problem. And this is an extremely damaging message because if we believe that there are some gains into having no barriers to the entry of men and women in the labor market and in most professions in the labor market, then this is not a women's problem. So there is no reason why women should be in charge of it. Yeah, this is, uh, I haven't thought about this Barbara, systematically, but so the, the place I grew up in India is in the southwestern part of India. And if you rewind time back there, actually women, all the wealth transferred to girls. So it was a society where women controlled everything. Um, it changed now, um, but it is sort of a, an experiment in, in uh, humanity in a, in a totally different way. It'll be very interesting can, to go back and look at. Can you repeat what you said at the beginning? Sorry, I, I've missed what you said at the very beginning of this story. Yeah, so this is a, a state in the southwestern part of India. So mm -hmm. if you go back 100, 200 years, um, all the wealth in the family actually trans uh, or, or held by women. They transferred mm -hmm. from mother yeah. to you know daughter, not from father to son that we traditionally yeah. conventionally So it's like do. matrilineal, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's a completely sort of a diametrically opposite system. And I wondered, I mean, I, I don't have any data on this. It will be very interesting to see how things were sort of playing out there in that system. Or do we see sort of a, a diametrically a, a, asymmetric <laughs> uh, policy question, I wondered, yeah. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I, I, I remember reading a paper that was looking precisely at whether gender differences in overconfidence, I think it was about overconfidence and competitiveness, but I'm not entirely sure. So the question yeah. of the of, of this study was to see whether those differences were innate or were induced by nurturing a society. And precisely what this study was doing was comparing a patriarchal society with a matrilineal society and looking at how teenage boys and girls would behave in terms of attitudes towards competition, towards competition. And they found that indeed in the two societies, the gender gap was reversed. So there was a big 
sort of societal nurturing yeah. component to the gender gap in attitudes to competition. Right. So, so all the things that you observe are symptoms. The underlying cause is really wealth transfer in some ways, right? So who is who's controlling the power? Who's controlling the wealth? Ultimately decides how things are going to pan out, seems to me. Yeah, so in, in, in a sense, we are observing the symptoms because we are observing the outcomes of yeah. an allocation that embodies some sort of initial condition problem, as you yeah. defined it before. Yeah, so I want to finish up with your paper, uh, Structural Transformation Over 150 Years for Women's and Men's Work. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it's substantial work. So if you can uh, sort of summarize this. So one thing I, you know, so this is sort of the longitudinal U-shape that we see here, you know, women's participation labor force, sort of declined for a while and then uh, post 1950 or so things have really came back right so so what are the reasons why we are seeing this type of phenomenon so we started this discussion precisely commenting on the past 50 60 years so yeah. during those 56 years there's been a spectacular increase in <laughs> participation to the labor market in most countries but this is not a universal phenomenon in the sense that yeah. There are other countries in the world, like developing countries, in which actually female participation is slightly falling. And female participation was also falling in those that are now rich countries before, for example, World War II. So by drawing on data from the US Census and a lot of like uh, ad hoc surveys of various sectors of the economy, various states, various occupations. I mean, putting together a very rich set of diverse sources, we document that indeed female participation to the labor market was falling between, say, the late 19th century and the early mid 20th century. And this is associated with mostly one phenomenon, the fact that in the early days, women were working a lot, but they were not working in paid occupations, say, as employees in a firm outside their workplace. They were mostly working as unpaid workers in family businesses, primarily family farms. So if we consider the very large number of so-called homemakers, they were classified homemakers back then, who were living on the farm, married to a self-employed farmer, these women were spending a considerable amount of time in farm activities in, in, in a given week. So according to the modern definition of labor, these women would be considered employed. Considering these women as employed, you would describe a kind of view that has its bottom more or less around mid-century. So female participation was falling before mid-century, and the fall was mimicking almost exactly the disappearance of family farm and unpaid work in the family farm or the large reduction in this. Yeah. And then the rebounding female employment in the second half of the 20th century, this was associated instead to the rise of the service sector. So unpaid agriculture on the farm was very female intensive. When that declined, female employment declined. Uh, when the service sector started to grow in the second part of the century, the service sector was generating all this kind of office job, clerical jobs, mm. 
in which women would indeed have a comparative advantage, whether innate or acquired for so social customs. So this sector was generating really sort of female-friendly jobs, and this was yeah. describing the upper part of the U in female employment. Yeah, yeah. So these female-friendly jobs. So again, you know, going back to our uh, previous uh, thought, if AI and robotics really take over, we mechanize all the sort of the human jobs, then every job could become female-friendly. Uh, it, it could be remote. It could be programmatic. So if, if there's no, there are no initial conditions deficiency in the female gender in terms of education, STEM exposure, things like that, then we could get to an egalitarian society. It might be <laughs> too much to ask. But Absolutely. I mean, but yeah. even before getting into AI, the very vast majority of jobs these days can be done by men and women. There aren't physical barriers to men and women doing most jobs. Uh, so if the barrier is one about human capital, then of course that barrier could be uh, overcome by having a sort of more equal participation into different fields and basically investing into those skills that would be in higher demand depending on technological waves. Now one issue that sort of remains that we were talking about before is what is the role of norms? But norms evolve too. So we've talked quite a lot about norms, but we haven't said that basically they're not exactly written in stone. They evolve slowly, but they do evolve. And sometimes the evolution of norms is actually accelerated by technological shocks or economic shocks or even wars or even disasters. So sometimes there are shocks that accelerate the evolution of gender roles simply because all of a sudden, women find themselves doing things that they were not doing before. And then it seems that perhaps they were not that bad at doing that. And then they continue to do it because that changed the perception of society about women's skills. Yeah, so, so this U-shaped curve that you have seen in the data, it, it could accelerate very quickly in the sense that, you know, so, it, you know, when I was in engineering school, as I said, it was like 1% women. Now it's 50 now it's 50 percent, uh, even in places like India. So when these uh, when when these batches graduate and they start to have kids, they will have no overhanging buyers on anything. And so we might see a sort of a vertical takeoff <laughs> of this of this U-shaped curve, perhaps. Wonder. So it's two things. One is the, the, the sort of skills differential, the human capital differential. The yeah. U-shape I was talking before is mostly related to the industry structure. So basically okay. we're talking about the decline in agriculture and the rising services. Yeah. Now the, rise, the, the rising services is sort of complete in many countries. So in many countries, as you were saying before, manufacturing in terms of bodies, not in, yeah. in terms of value added, of course, but in terms of bodies, very small. So there is probably little else to expect from these countries in which the transition to services is now mature. But we can learn a lot from developing countries in which this transition is not mature yet. So, for example, in some developing countries, the manufacturing sector is still growing a bit, but slowing down. In some countries, it has started to fall. So we can expect that female employment in those countries may mimic something similar to what was happening in the UK with the process yes. of industrialization first, and the industrialization later. Now, of course, the expectation is that in countries that are making 
that transition now, the transition in and out of manufacturing is going to be a lot faster. Because, of course, the whole process of technology adoption, whether in manufacturing or knowledge adoption in services, is going to be a lot faster. So people working on these things for developing countries, they do observe, yes, there can be a U, but the manufacturing phase is a lot shorter. Yeah, so, you know, it's almost like the 200 countries that we have, there are the various stages of development. And so the cross-sectional data that you can get is sort of longitudinal. In its uh, in its behavior, which is yeah really interesting. So it's very similar. So you can get yeah. a U shape for a single country over time. You yeah. can get a U shape at a certain point in time on a cross section of countries, and the thing is that they look really similar. Yeah, yeah, that's really fascinating. Excellent, Barbara. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this late in uh, late in uh, in UK, and. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks.